Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for being our friend and opening a door of prayer for us to come. And we come now seeking your help in this message. Help to speak and help to hear, help to understand, help to be vulnerable to the Holy Spirit, that we might be changed. So come. Draw near, be our teacher. Guard us from the evil one right now, Lord, who would confuse and distract and destroy and deceive. Protect us, O God. Fill this place with your Holy Spirit now, I ask. Let there be an anointing upon this word. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Before you open your Bibles, I want to sum up for you where we've been in the book of Hebrews. So just look at me, and then I'll have you look at the book. In chapter 1, at the beginning, it says, In many and various ways God spoke of old through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, Jesus Christ. So there was a, an era or a season of speaking in diverse ways with some angelic mediators through human prophets. And then something radically new entered into the world, namely the Word Himself, Jesus Christ, and God spoke by a Son. And the reason it says that Jesus inaugurates the last days when he comes and delivers God's final word, is because there's no third chapter. There's the pre-Jesus, pre-incarnation chapter of communication from God, and then there's the Jesus chapter. And that's all there is. Any subsequent revelation will be Illumination and application and unfolding of all that is in Jesus. All wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus, Paul says. So the last days begin with Jesus, the last word. He's the final decisive word. And then, surprisingly perhaps to us, this chapter 1 of Hebrews is all about the superiority of this Jesus over angels. You say, whew, what's the big deal with angels? And I think the reason is this. When you get to chapter 2, you find out that in the Old Testament, during that era of revelation, angels had a key role in mediating words from God to human beings. It says that in chapter 2, verse 3. So the writer thinks, aha, if I say now in these last days God has spoken by a son, somebody might conclude, aha, the son is a big angel. He did it with angels in the Old Testament. He's doing it with big angels now, really important angels, Michael-like angels, Gabriel-like angels, which is exactly what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. And the whole chapter is written to say, no. Jesus is not an angel. He is the Son, God. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact representation of the nature of God. He is God, verse 8, and he is worshipped by angels, verse 6. He is not an angel. Now, that's chapter 1 of Hebrews. The conclusion or the inference drawn out is at the beginning of chapter 2. Now, would you open your Bibles if you brought one or if you want to reach for one under the pew in front of you? We're going to start at verse 1. Again, we've already preached twice on verses 1 to 4 of Hebrews 2, but we're going to read it again and then pick up at verse 5 for the message this morning. But you need to see the inference now that is drawn out of chapter 1, which is the superiority of Christ over all angelic beings, Christ being the final decisive word of God, a great salvation having been summed up in him and wrought by him. What then should we do? That's what chapter 2 begins to answer. Verse 1, chapter 2, Hebrews. For this reason, all that I've just said in the last five minutes, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, namely that last, final, decisive word of Jesus Christ. Pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels, now he's referring back to that first period. If the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, the apostles, the eyewitnesses, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere, and then he quotes Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6. What is man that thou rememberest him, or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Amen. Now let's focus on verses 5 to 9. Verse 5 begins with the word for. Or because to show that what is now coming is a reason or a basis or a foundation for what was just said. Now, what was just said? Verses one to four, in a nutshell, say our salvation in Jesus Christ, God's final word, 
is so great that it would be suicidal to neglect it. Don't neglect such a great salvation. Give earnest heed to this word lest you drift away into destruction. Now comes verse 5. For it is not to angels that he subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. Now that took me many hours to figure out. What is that? Do not neglect your great salvation, for it is not to angels that he subjected the world to come. Mm. Get it? I don't get it. One of the things that is so good is not to get it at first, because if you think you got it, you probably will never get it. I mean, that did not make sense to me for a long time. How does verse 5 support verses 1 to 4? Why is it introduced by that word for or because? Does it make sense? Don't neglect your great salvation, for God did not subject to angels the world to come. Now the answer, the issue here is who rules the world to come? Not angels, he says. Not angels. Who then rules the world to come? And how is that part of my great salvation that would cause me this morning to walk out of here and be more vigilant, more careful, more able not to neglect my great salvation, but to give heed to the final decisive word of Jesus Christ, my salvation? What is the answer? Now, keep in mind this as we try to answer that question. When you look in verse 3 of chapter 2 at the phrase great salvation... That's a reference not only to the past where Christ made purification for sins, bore my curse, my guilt, delivered me from wrath and condemnation, clothed me with his righteousness. It's also a looking forward to what that purchased for me in the age to come, the world to come, as verse 5 calls it. How do I know that? Because in chapter 1, verse 14 the salvation is said to be yet to be inherited. Those who are to inherit salvation. You inherit what you don't yet have. So you've got some of your salvation this morning. You've got forgiveness of sins. You've got reconciliation with the Father. You've got the presence of the Holy Spirit as a down payment in your life. You've got a door of hope open to glory, but what you don't yet have is the redemption of your body, freedom from the curse of death, sinlessness, intimate, close fellowship with the Father face to face. We walk by faith and not by sight. So you've got precious salvation and there's precious salvation you don't yet have. When it says we have a great salvation, it means don't neglect to look back at what you have and don't neglect to look forward to what's coming in the world to come. For it is not to angels that he subdued or subjected the world to come. I still don't get it. How is my salvation 
undergirded and my devotion not to neglect it strengthened by saying that it's not angels who will rule the world to come. Let me pause here with a parenthesis. Just because of the way God dealt with me in preparing for this sermon. At this point, as I was meditating, trying to figure out how to make this plain and how to understand it, a word from the Gospels came into my mind about neglecting our salvation. I think it's a classic parable that Jesus told about what it means to neglect our great salvation. And what hit me so hard is that the things that make us neglect our salvation unto destruction are not the evil things we think they are. Let me read it for you. This is Luke 14, 16. A certain man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many, Jesus said. Now, this is a picture of our great salvation. There's a banquet out there, folks. There's a big dinner waiting us at the end of this age. Big dinner. Big party. Big celebration. Big deliverance. Big salvation. It's waiting, and the invitation has gone out to everybody in this room, and through you, to everybody you talk to, the invitation is, come to the dinner. Come to the banquet. Verse 17 and at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go look at it. Please consider me. Excused. Verse 19. Another one said, I have bought a yoke of oxen. I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused from heaven. That's my words from heaven. That's the meaning. Verse 20, another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. That is an awesome parable. Do you hear what it says? Hebrews is saying, don't neglect your great salvation. Give heed. And this parable says, you know what the big threats in your life are? It's not alcohol. It's not sex. It's real estate. It's oxen. Translate that. Cars. Computers. It's family. And what blows your mind about that parable is that God made all those things and they're good. Land is good. Houses are good. Cars are good. Computers are good. Wives and children and husbands are good. And they keep people out of heaven. That should make us tremble. That should make us read with trembling and say, Oh God, God, please don't let me so love my wife. 
Don't let me so love my children. Don't let me so be occupied with my computer stuff and my car stuff and my real estate stuff and my investment stuff and my health stuff and my stuff. Don't let it have me. Take me, keep me, hold me close to yourself. Don't let me become inebriated by the good things in the world. The good things in the world keep more people out of heaven than the bad things. Did you hear that? The good things in the world keep more people out of heaven than the bad things. The bad things, we know they're bad. We feel rotten most of the time when we do the bad things. And there's hope, therefore, that we might escape because we feel so bad. And feeling bad is good. But who feels bad about good investments? Who feels bad about a new computer? Who feels bad about this car? I love this car. Who feels bad about my family? I finally got a spouse or the baby was finally born. Or who feels bad about that when they are sucking the life out of you? Hardly anybody. And therefore, it is so dangerous. It is so dangerous, which is why pain and affliction are so valuable. Well, all that's a parenthesis that God did on me yesterday to make me hear this word about not neglecting our salvation. And verses 5 to 9 are written to help me not neglect that salvation. And the argument starts for it is not to angels that he subjected the world to come about which I'm speaking in this great salvation. And so I've got to have it, Lord. i got to know what are you saying here? I don't get it. How is it that not subjecting the world to come to angels makes my salvation so exciting that I will not neglect it? And the answer is given in verses 6 to 8. Not to angels, but to whom will he subject the world to come? Let's read it. This is the quotation from Psalm 8. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that thou rememberest him? Or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him for a little while... Or a little lower than the angels, thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Now we know who it is, or do we? Who is this? Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Don't neglect your great salvation, for it is not to angels that God will subject the world to come. It is man to whom he will subject the world to come. Now, Psalm 8 is pretty clear. And in its Old Testament context... It's referring to human beings in general, right? What is man that thou remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. That's a celebration of two things. Our comparative insignificance and our majestic destiny. 
as those created in the image of God. Man is being celebrated to the glory of God because of being created in his image and ruling creation under God as God's deputy. That's what Psalm 8 is all about. Now, the question here in this in this context is, does the writer of Hebrews believe that's what it means? Does the writer to the Hebrews give it that meaning? Is he saying, don't neglect your great salvation, for it is not to angels that he subjected the world to come. It is to you that he subjected the world to come. Is that the meaning of verses five through eight? I think it is. Which is why the breath is taken away that that's our destiny. Not to angels does he subject the world to come, but somewhere it says, what is man? He has crowned man with glory and honor. There's a massive problem with that. Big, massive problem with that. When we look at man, he is not subjecting anything but is subjected by everything, especially death, which is very much on this writer's mind. At the end of verse 8, notice, at the end of verse 8 comes this sobering but. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. That's an understatement. Man is to rule creation according to Psalm 8. And this writer says, I look out on mankind and I don't see it. Man's not a conqueror. He's a carcass. Everywhere. Tornadoes. How many, how many were awake at 1.30 this morning? Raise your hand. He'd get you up anytime he wants. You had control last night? I'm sure we had control last night. In Christ, you can enjoy that kind of thing, by the way. I was right downtown here and it didn't come. I just was envious of all you suburbanites because you got it evidently because I could hear it, it must have been three, four miles away and we didn't get any. Just wind. I mean, I want the lightning to crack and the thunder to crack at the same time. None of this delayed warning stuff. Flash, one, two, three, boom. I said, come on in to Minneapolis. I love power. You, you were not in charge last night, believe me. No, nor were any meteorologists. We are subjected. That's what this writer saw. He looked around at disease, floods, tornadoes, wars, and he said, so where's the triumph for humankind? It is amazing what we can persuade ourselves of, we humans. Why we can make airplanes 
And we can make radios and televisions and computers and cellular phones and lasers and antibiotics and artificial heart valves and pacemakers and fertilizers and corneas to put in our eyes and satellite communications. We do rule. We rule. Creation. There's a big problem with that. And this writer knows. You don't have to live in the 20th century to know the vacuity of that observation. Namely, rocket scientists die. Death scoffs at our medicines. Death scoffs at our surgeries and our diets and our vitamins and our health regimens and our exercise programs. It takes babies. It takes teenagers, it takes young adults, it takes midlifers, it takes old people. It leaves carcasses everywhere. Doctors die, politicians die, professors die, Nobel Prize winners die, rich die, the poor die, the good die, the bad die, farmers die, computer programmers die, preachers die, everybody dies, and because everybody dies, Everything we thought we had triumphed over goes with us. We are not in charge. And therefore, you come to the end of verse 8, having celebrated, having quoted Psalm 8, man crowned with glory and honor. And he says, we do not yet see it. Now, how then is this a help for me to feel excited about my great salvation? Sounds like bad news to me. Psalm 8 held out a glorious destiny for mankind. Mankind is just one wasteland of disease and, and war and futility. So where's the good news? All right, verse 9. Be sure you see it in connection with verse 8. So let me read a little a little piece of verse 8 and then read verse 9 and you'll see how they connect. Verse 8 says, lamentingly, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Now I'm interpreting him to mean human beings. According to what Psalm 8 taught us. Not Jesus yet. The transition to Jesus, the human being, comes now in verse 9. All right? Let's watch how it comes. But what do we see? We do see him, capital H, who was made a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus because of the suffering of death, crowned, just like Psalm 8 said, with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In other words, this writer's way of thinking about the psalm seems to be this. The psalm is about humanity. Destined to rule under God over creation as deputies in the image of God. 
And sin came into the world and devastated that purpose. And therefore, as you look around at the end of verse 8, we do not yet see things subjected to him. You, me, Christians. But what do we see now? The last decisive final word has come into the world as man with a capital M. And he has taken all this disease and all this futility and all this war and all this sin upon himself and it crushed him to death. And from inside the belly of death, he poisoned death, as Jonathan Edwards once said. And death vomited him out into glory. And never will he ever be subjected again to disease or death or sin or futility so that in Christ, Psalm 8 now stands finished. It is complete. There it is in the man. And you should ask now, okay, for Jesus, neat. I've got arthritis or Parkinson's disease or a blind kid or a wife with cancer. Connect. The connection is made at the end of verse 9. He did this, suffering, dying, being crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death. For everyone. What that means is that he is our forerunner into glory. He has taken death upon himself in a way that will enable you not to have to take it on the way he took it on. The stinger has been removed from it. The condemnation, the judgment, the wrath has been taken out of it. And it has been made a doorway to glory. Indeed, a crown of triumph. So, Christian, you who do not neglect your great salvation, you will one day, you will one day reign with Jesus. Psalm 8 has been bought by Jesus for himself and all who are in him. In relationship to Jesus Christ, you will pass through disease, you will pass through death, you will pass through all the futilities and disappointments and frustrations of this life straight into kingly, queenly glory forever and ever. And not a word will fall to the ground from Psalm 8 for the new humanity that is in Jesus Christ. The first Adam sinned and forfeited this great promise of Psalm 8. And all that he got then was making bread in the sweat of his brow and going back to the dust. And now Jesus, the second Adam, comes into the world and he takes all that futility and all that sweat and all that condemnation and sin upon himself and he starts a new humanity as the new man and the new Adam. And he says, anyone can be a part of this humanity in me. We'll talk next week about who is the everyone at the end of verse 9. But let me close with this exhortation. You should be practically asking now, all right, if this is so, what then should I do? 
What should I do? And the answer is real simple. It's good old gospel truth. Put your faith in the promise of this great salvation. This morning before you leave, put your faith in this glorious promise of a great salvation that someday what has been now true of Jesus through death in the glory will become true of you. Nothing can cut you off from it except unbelief. Put your faith in the promise of this great salvation and say to cancer, to blindness, to the paralysis of 20-year-olds, to airplane-eating Everglades, to children-shooting fathers, Say to them, Psalm 8 is our destiny. Psalm 8 is my destiny. To pass through all of those agonies and all of those frustrations and all of that sin and all of that disappointment into glory where Psalm 8 says, with Jesus, the man, I will reign. And establish yourself in that. Believe that this morning. Because if you believe that, then I know that as you move backwards in this text, you will not neglect your great salvation. It's just too great. It's too great to neglect. And the only reason anybody would neglect it after hearing what I've said is that you don't believe me. You're too hard. And so I want to close by praying for you. And by inviting any of you who wants to pray with me or the prayer teams at the front to come up afterwards. Let me pray and then we're going to sing a song and we'll be done. Let's pray first. Father in heaven, I know that sin is very powerful and Satan is very deceptive. And right now both sin and Satan and our own flesh would conspire to squeeze the truth out of this word and send us back to our oxen and our lands and our families oblivious to the spectacular hope of the world to come. Grip your people now and don't let them drift, I pray. Show them the great truth. Come fix your eyes on Christ and see the glory that you soon will be. We perform that in your people. Even as we close in song, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.